0: Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect program. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the program, please press star, then zero on your touchtone telephone. And as a reminder, this program is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's program, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you, Mary, and
1: I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect program, The Importance of Nutrition and Physical Activity, and this is part two of our seventh annual Cancer Survivorship Series, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. Today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the National Cancer Institute, the Lance Armstrong Foundation, the Intercultural Cancer Council, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, and National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And we've been doing this now for 70 years, and it's that collaboration that really has enabled us to reach so many of you, plus your interest, of course, in this topic. We have on the call today over 2,935 people. So this is a very, very large. This is our largest in our series program that we've ever done. So it's a credit to each of you that you're with us today. And you come from all over the United States. You come from large cities and small cities and suburban areas. And you also come from rural and frontier communities. We also have international participants from Canada, Australia, American Samoa, Ireland, Japan, Germany, Italy, the United Kingdom, Guam, Portugal, Malaysia, Dominican Republic, and India. So you truly come from all over the world, and this is a really particularly a fascinating global call. Now, I'd like to turn your attention to the materials that you received from Cancer Care. In those materials, there are handouts that our speakers have prepared, the outline that they're going to cover. There also is information about all of the different organizations that have come together and lots of their resources, their websites, their telephone numbers, their 800 numbers that you can contact. And, of course, there is an evaluation form. And we would ask you to take a moment at the end of today's program to complete that evaluation form. When you think about it, who but each of you can best tell us the programs you'd like us to do in the future. We are going to be planning a program for next year, and your comments, and your suggestions, and the topics that you'd like us to offer, we very much, we really rely on that to keep these programs relevant to meet your needs. So just take a moment, to complete that evaluation form, and, uh, and email it back to us. Send it back to us in the mail. Whatever works for you, and we are very grateful for that. Now. Today's program is made possible by support from the National Cancer Institute and the Livestrong Lance Armstrong Foundation, and we really want to thank them for this seven years of support of this, of this series and this program. And it's now my pleasure to introduce to you my co-moderator for today's program, Dr. Catherine Alfano, who's Program Director and Behavioral Scientist at the National Cancer Institute's Office of Cancer Survivorship. And Dr. Alfano, my colleague and esteemed colleague, is going to say really some welcome To you, all of you, Emily, to put the program in a context around the survivorship issues. Dr. Alfano?
2: Thank you, Carolyn, and welcome to our invited speakers and to all of the listeners who have joined us for today's workshop. It's truly an honor to be able to co-host this 7th Annual Cancer Survivorship Teleconference Series, focusing on the issues faced by survivors and their loved ones after treatment ends. As Carolyn noted, this is the second of three workshops in our 2009 series, And the National Cancer Institute, represented by my office, the Office of Cancer Survivorship, and by the Office of Communications and Education, is pleased to serve once again as an organizational partner and co-funder of this program. As some of you may know, the National Cancer Institute established the Office of Cancer Survivorship in 1996 in direct response to the articulate and compelling demand by cancer survivors and by the advocacy community to better understand the unique and ongoing needs of this growing population. The overall goal of the office is to improve the length and the quality of survival for all of those living with a history of cancer, which is currently estimated to be over 12 million people in the United States alone. One of the ways the office achieves its mission is by participating in the development of educational materials and outreach activities, such as this teleconference series, that are designed to equip cancer survivors and their caregivers with the information that they need to achieve optimal health and well-being after cancer. The number of participants in this survivorship series has continued to grow across the years. In the past, we've had participants from over two dozen countries on our calls making our capacity to reach those in search of information truly global. Along with our program partners, we're deeply gratified by this response. And at the same time, we recognize that the popularity of this series is a testament to the fact that for many cancer survivors, even though cancer treatment is over, the cancer experience is not. The topics that we have chosen for this year's teleconference series reflect themes that many survivors, caregivers, and their healthcare providers have told us present challenges for them as survivors make the transition from treatment to recovery. Today's topic, the importance of nutrition and physical activity, is an extremely important one since making these healthy behavior changes has the potential to improve health and quality of life. However, while many survivors and their loved ones tell us that they are interested in making positive lifestyle changes, most are not sure how to do it. I am very pleased to have three outstanding speakers, all of them experts in health behaviors and survivorship, who will address this very important topic today. Again, I'm delighted to be co-hosting this workshop with my colleague, Dr. Carolyn Messner. I will now turn the program over to her.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Alfano, for those really wonderful words of introduction to the program and really to set this in a context and to really let people know how important this series has been to everyone, and this particular topic is clearly of great importance to all of you on the call. Now, we have wonderful additional speakers on the program today, and our first speaker is Dr. Anna Schwartz, and Dr. Schwartz is actually going to provide us with a survivor perspective Um, She is a cancer survivor. She's Executive Medical Director, Rehabilitation Systems, and Affiliate Professor, University of Washington. And she really is going to tell you her story and how she has incorporated uh, nutrition and physical activity into her survivorship. Uh, Dr. Schwartz.
3: Thank you.
4: February 1988, I heard the word cancer, and then I couldn't take in the rest of what the doctor was telling me. My whole world started spinning. That little two-syllable word, cancer, changed the way I looked at life and my whole way of being. It was like a curtain coming down, ending the naive freedom and innocence of youth and the beginning of a new life filled with uncertainty, but also intensity, concentration, enthusiasm, and passion. I went from a young, free-spirited college student to one blanketed in the darkness of the violent black storm clouds, alone, terrified, and confused. I was overwhelmed with decisions and emotion, but oddly at the same time, filled with hope and a strong desire to pursue what was meaningful to me. As I searched to find what that was, I remembered the things I loved in life and dreamed about as a child, exploring the world, feeling the wind in my face, feeling fully alive and present, pushing myself, dreaming of the impossible. I've always been interested in pushing the limits of human performance and exploring new frontiers of research. And when I graduated from nursing school, I wanted to work in a cutting-edge, research-based job, Somehow I didn't realize, or perhaps I was in denial, when I accepted my first job out of nursing school in a bone marrow transplant unit. It was cutting-edge research and medicine, all right, but all the patients had cancer. Many had the same diagnosis as I did. The concerns of my patients were so close to my own that I was once again flooded by emotions. I was overwhelmed with everything in my life and got fat, even fatter than I had gotten from treatment, depressed and hopelessly out of shape. I'd always been a natural athlete, but I was hitting the lowest point in my life and felt incredibly old. Everyone's advice to me, including doctors, nurses, and loved ones, was to rest, take care of myself. That advice just seemed to make me feel worse, more drained of energy and simply exhausted. I was in a steep downward spiral. Finally, I reached a point in the spiral when I realized that only I could make things different. Deep in my heart, I knew I needed to take action and do something for myself, and that was to start exercising. All my life, physical activity had been freeing and a way to feel at peace. Bicycling had always appealed to me as the ideal form of sport. Not only did you get exercise, but you got to go places. A childhood dream had been to ride my bicycle across the United States. Little did I know that where I was living was a winter training mecca for cyclists. I harnessed this opportunity and learned to cycle with world-class cyclists. I embraced bicycling with passion and, much to my surprise, realized that I was changing my life and I was in control. Not only was I losing the weight I had gained, but I felt strong physically and emotionally, and I can see myself getting faster and fitter. Yet there were days of complete and utter exhaustion and disappointment. There were days that I couldn't reach my goals. But I learned to set reasonable and attainable goals so that I could see success and feel good about what I was accomplishing. I kept a log of my exercise so even on the bad days I could see that I was making progress. And I kept believing that by strengthening my body and mind, I could harvest the physical and emotional power to make the most of my life. My whole life started to open up and the impossible started to become possible. In 1989, I rode my bike from San Diego to Jacksonville Beach, Florida, in less than three weeks. I even started bicycle racing, and much to my surprise and delight, even started winning. Within a few years, I went on to win national time trial championships and set several 24-hour world records, the last one in 1992 riding 436.5 miles in 24 hours. My life had turned an unexpected corner, And I now felt that cancer was a gift that had provided opportunities to test and push myself far beyond what I had had imagined without the dreaded two-syllable diagnosis of cancer. But then a little ache changed everything. Recurrence brought back those initial feelings of terror, emptiness, and the question, what am I doing with my life? The golden path I'd been cruising down was once again violently shaken. Inside, I kept yelling, I have so much more to do. Don't slow me down. I was angry more than scared, and then it hit me. I could still be in charge and do something. Now it was time for me to try and give back, make a difference for others, and do something meaningful. Over the years, I had observed in my bone marrow transplant patients that those people who exercised and simply got up and walked around the room or rode the exercise bike, they seemed to tolerate their treatments better, both physically and emotionally. Seeing this phenomenon over and over in patients and keenly knowing what a difference exercise had made in my own recovery and in my long-term survivorship, I decided to go back to graduate school. It was time to learn how to be a scientist and pursue a life researching the effects of exercise during and following cancer treatment. From my early personal and painful beginnings, I found that cancer survivors need to exercise, certainly not rest. We now know that this well-meaning advice to rest and take care of yourself is simply wrong. In fact, rest and inactivity sap our energy and make us weak and debilitated, actually robbing us of our quality of life. Exercise is important for cancer survivors to do activities that are meaningful and important so that we can live life the fullest that we can possibly be. For For the past 15 years, I have dedicated my work to discovering how physical activity helps cancer survivors tolerate treatment and improve their quality of life. Now I'm focused on getting that information out to survivors through talks like this and my book, Cancer Fitness, Exercise Programs for Patients and Survivors. As survivors, we have the power to choose our path. We all face setbacks in life that challenge us physically and emotionally, but we have to look forward and make decisions that will not only help us live a full life, but set an example for others and hopefully make life better for our families and those we love. Cancer taught me the vital importance of keeping my mind focused on possibilities and dreams. Cancer was a window that brought tears and sunshine, darkness and opportunity. These extreme opposites also brought true passion, intensity, and enthusiasm for life and living it with meaning and purpose. I hope my words today help you to find a sun shining in your window and will motivate you to start exercising to live a healthier, fuller life. Thank you. Thank you
1: thank you very much, Dr. Schwartz, for that very inspiring opening, really, keynote. You really did the kind of survivor perspective. Very helpful. And I, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, and uh, thank you very much for, for your sharing your story. Thank you. Our next speaker um, is Dr. Wendy demarc Um She is a professor of behavioral science at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And um, she is really going to talk about um, the importance of nutrition, Um, dietary changes that you can all make, um, some reliable resources for you, and diet-related trials that may be going on. So she's really going to really talk to you about some of the eating hints, things that you can actually um, benefit from in your day-to-day life. Um, Dr. Wannifried?
5: Thank you so much. It's great to be on and uh, and to talk about my favorite topic, nutrition. One of the things that Dr. Schwartz talked about in her battle with cancer is some of the weight gain that that does occur, um, either uh, that may occur before diagnosis uh, or uh, weight gain that happens after diagnosis. And she's not alone. Uh, And one of the recommendations that is made for for cancer survivors is to try to to, uh, control their weight, keep it uh, toward the ideal range as much as possible. Because, indeed, we find that people that are able to do that, just like people that are exercise, that that exercise, um, the observational data show that um, that there may be benefit uh, for improving overall health. So um, uh, exercise is important, very much so, in, in pursuing uh, weight control, but so too is diet. And I just wanted to, um, I know that uh, sometimes uh, we all uh, get a little bit, carry a little bit extra weight than we want to, and some helpful tips that we have from our patients that have participated on our studies uh, that maybe um, the listening audience could benefit from as well. And so I'm just going to go through a few of these simple tips, and perhaps those that, that are fighting weight issues uh, could adopt these. Um, the first one, uh, again, uh, is to try to fill up the stomach as much as we can. So to, to um, before we sit down to eat, uh, to drink a, a big glass of water uh, before each meal. Um, and that will occupy some room. Our stomach is usually, or most stomachs of, of human beings, hold about five pounds. So if you can occupy about um, occupy most of that space with a big glass of water, you'll find that you have less room for for other things um, and food and Twinkies and all that other kind of stuff that um, uh, adds pounds onto us. And then, in between meals, before we um, uh, you know temptation often does get the better of us as we sit down we watch t v or whatever and we think about how how hungry we might be is to employ that rule again uh, to tell yourself. Well, uh, I will eat, but first I'll take a big glass of water. Uh, and again, the stomach will hold less. Now, the temperature of that water does make a difference. Ice water doesn't seem to occupy, uh, uh, isn't as much of a space filler. Uh, lukewarm water, however, is. And you'll, you can find that if you do have a big glass of lukewarm water, it, it does turn off your appetite. Another thing that can turn off appetite is to just dab a little bit of perfume underneath your nose. Um, some of our women uh, find this men uh, there may be some sort of social stigma with this, but uh, the women that are in our studies uh one of our women in particular that is a, a very successful um, at her weight loss program actually dabbed a little bit of cologne under her nose uh, um, as she uh, entered the door after work that tended to be her hard period of time where she would uh, get home from work and and want a snack. And a little drop of perfume helped her um, um, keep an edge off of her hunger. Another thing is to eat on, on smaller dishes or to use black dishes instead. That tends to be a, a cue for, for eating less. In our study that was just uh, reported in uh, JAMA a few, um, well, actually just a few days ago, we um, uh, tried to um, uh, instill a program where our cancer survivors would lose weight, uh, those that were overweight. And something that was very helpful for us were um, portion plates. Uh, there's a, a company called Portion Doctor that, that sells plates where the portions are, are marked on the plate, and that's a good cue uh, for, um, for keeping those portions under control. Uh, The other thing is to eat eat foods with fewer calories, Um, broth-based soup, starting the meal with a broth-based soup uh, like uh, consomme or um, some sort of, uh, again, uh, a berry, uh, maybe a vegetable soup or a minestrone is one way of occupying more space. And to eat more fruits and vegetables because those are much, they pack far fewer calories than the other foods. Um, and then uh, also just to try to keep the hands busy uh, if we're uh, occupying our hands with knit, women that knit and I, here I 'm using a little bit of sexual stereotyping, which I really don't mean to men certainly can knit as well but um, again, in our uh, study that we have just completed, uh, the the people that were able to uh, be successful with their weight loss uh, had a uh, tended to have a hobby that they could keep their hands busy, whether it be knitting or Whittling or uh, that sort of thing, and then uh, finally, just to clear the house of food cues, so removing candy dishes uh, from um, the house, uh, so that uh, it it uh, it doesn't take a lot of um, Uh, food to pack on the pounds, Uh, and uh, if you uh, exercise, that's again one way to uh, reduce the amount of uh, energy that that gets converted to fat, but if you exercise and then you eat, it doesn't do too much good, and and, uh, it takes about eight minutes of uh, exercise to burn off six jelly beans, so um, they add up quickly. Uh, For cancer survivors, it's really important to eat a plant-based diet. And that means uh, one of the uh, most uh, important components of the diet are fruits and vegetables. And um, what what is recommended is for women to eat at least seven servings of fruits and vegetables a day, and for men, nine servings of fruits and vegetables a day. And uh, those are important not only for the nutrients, but again, for, for the weight control. And uh, with more of an emphasis on vegetables and less of an emphasis on fruit, so a majority of that should be vegetables as opposed to fruit. Uh, and then, um, as, uh, in a final note, is just to watch the amount of fat and meat in the diet. Um, in sitting down and having meals, meat should be no long. Uh, the serving of meat should be no larger than a deck of cards, uh, and uh, using appropriate. Uh, fats and oils also is important, uh, and you may want to check your your pantry. Make sure that you're using olive oil or canola oil instead of other uh, other forms of oil, uh, and that's important um, uh, for uh, cardiovascular health. Um, and so that's that's base, Those are basically the um, hallmarks of a, a good diet. Um, lastly, uh, I'm going to just hit briefly on supplements. I know that a lot of cancer survivors tend to want to uh, use supplements. We know that 60 to eighty percent of Cancer survivors uh, generally take supplements. And right now, um, the data show that supplements are actually, um, most of the studies that have tested supplements have shown more harm than good from them. Uh, and so we really suggest that uh, people get their nutrients from food uh, and um, and not to really use supplements unless they're on a clinical trial. And um, for cancer survivors uh, that would like to participate in diet-related clinical uh, trials, just to go to the NIH website to, and, and uh, look up clinical trials and see which ones are diet-related. And that's it.
1: Well, I want to thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. mark uh, Winifred, for an excellent presentation. Really for giving people some really very, um, very important, and very, uh, creative, actually, tips in terms of, um, managing weight and, and with eating appropriate food. So thank you for that. And I know there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Our next speaker is, um, Dr., um, Bernadine Pinto. And Dr. Pinto is Professor of Research, the Miriam Hospital and the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University, centers for behavioral and preventive medicine. And Dr. Pinto is really going to focus on the importance of exercise, types of exercise, exercise exercise-related clinical trials for survivors, and really tips and strategies on how to get more exercise, so things that we're always very interested to hear more about. I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Pinto.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. It is afternoon over here in Rhode Island, and I'm very glad to have this opportunity to talk to you all about exercise and its relevance to cancer survivorship. So my thanks to Dr. Messner for inviting me. And as she has just mentioned, today I'm going to share with you my view of what we know about the benefits of exercise for cancer patients, how exercise might help in recovery, what type of exercise is useful, and then I'll end with some tips on how to motivate yourself to become or stay active. Now, for many years, just as Dr. Schwartz mentioned, get plenty of rest was the recommendation that patients received both during and after cancer treatments. And reducing physical activity, though it may be appropriate during treatment for those who are experiencing side effects, it doesn't have to be the norm for everyone, especially after treatment completion. As many of our listeners know and may have experienced, cancer patients report difficulties such as fatigue, changes in body image, sexual functioning, anxiety, and depressed mood, and some of these uh, effects linger for many months or years. Now, when we think about the general public, becoming and staying physically active has been known to improve mood, increase vigor and energy, in addition to improving cardiovascular health, managing high blood pressure, diabetes, osteoporosis, and other chronic illnesses. And unfortunately, cancer treatments can increase risk for some of these illnesses. The good news is that we know that exercise helps to reduce this risk. My understanding from talking to survivors is that exercise is appealing to those of you who are looking for for ways in which you can take charge and improve your well-being and recovery. And finally, exercise has special appeal to patients and families because it doesn't involve medications. So let me move on and let me address the question of whether exercise offers physical or psychological benefits for those who have cancer. Some studies have shown promising results both among patients who are receiving treatments such as chemo or radiation as well as among those who have survived treatment. And generally, people who took part in these trials were encouraged encouraged to adopt moderate intensity aerobic exercise such as brisk walking and biking. So we're certainly not talking about running marathons or taking part in triathlons. The, The people who participated and who exercised showed improvements in fitness, in mood, in vigor versus those who stayed inactive, and in 2004, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality here in the U.S. reviewed 24 such studies that offered exercise programs for patients and survivors, and they found that the interventions produced substantial increases in in physical activity in fitness that included improved strength and flexibility, improved quality of life, reduced fatigue, and increased energy. Now, a majority of these studies were offered to breast cancer patients while they were going through treatment, and they promoted aerobic exercise. But the goals were very similar to what the U.S. Surgeon General recommends for all U.S. adults, which is try to exercise at least at moderate intensity on most days of the week for at least 30 minutes each day. Very few uh, investigators have looked at the benefits of resistance exercise for cancer patients. And at this time, we know very little about what's the minimum level of exercise that that is needed for any specific benefits, such as reduction in fatigue or improvement in mood. But as the field develops, one can expect that we'll examine that important question. One question that does arise um, relates to whether there are side effects of exercise. In the published studies, very few actually were tracking Uh, side effects of these programs, but among those that did, there were very few, if if any, side effects. Keep in mind, though, the people who took part in these studies were very carefully screened, uh, and so patients with late-stage disease or patients with other chronic illnesses may not have been included. Do we know whether the benefits of exercise maintain? Well, we don't really know the answer to that question simply because many studies haven't followed patients for months or even years after they completed the exercise program. I would expect that, as with the general population, that cancer patients, too, might find it difficult to stick with a regular exercise routine. So although we don't know whether the benefits maintain over long periods, I would expect that if these benefits are related to fitness, if you don't keep up with exercise, you're going to lose fitness pretty quickly as well. Now the question, how much and what type of exercise is beneficial? While it seems very possible that exercise can be one of the ways that survivors can promote their own health and well-being, there's some precautions to consider. So the safe approach is to consult your physician uh, prior to beginning a program, see if the exercise you plan to do is safe and appropriate, and also to make sure that your program is integrated with the medications or diet or nutrition and other lifestyle changes. Let's assume you want to exercise, but you don't know what's too much and what type of exercise you should try. The answer to that question depends on your fitness and where you are in your cancer treatment. Generally, when you're receiving treatment, if you're still receiving radiation or chemotherapy, we generally suggest that you check with your oncologist and see if becoming active is something he or she would recommend. Uh, if there are some rehabilitation issues you need to consider, like problems with balance, then getting a referral to a physical therapist would be important. If exercise is something you haven't done before, you can also get a referral to an exercise specialist at the local Y or uh, specific programs for cancer patients. In general, look for someone with, especially in this country, look for someone with American College of Sports Medicine certification because a specialist would be able to develop a prescription an exercise prescription that takes into account your level of fitness, your specific history, and then the program can be tailored for your needs. After treatment, the American Cancer Society recommends that most patients can follow the public health guidelines of about 150 minutes a week of moderate-intensity exercise. Again, this is like brisk walking or other activities that make your heart beat a little faster, cause you to sweat a little bit, but you should be able to carry on a conversation. If you're more fit, you can try vigorous exercise for about 20 minutes at least three times a week. Those are uh, activities like running or jogging where you're going to sweat a little bit more and your heart is going to uh, pump faster. Uh, one One of the good resources that I would recommend is the American Cancer Society Guide for Informed Choices. It was published in 2006, and it deals with both nutrition and physical activity during and after cancer treatment. If your physician doesn't identify a major problem or physical limitation that requires you to take part in a supervised exercise program, I'm just going to end and share some tips uh, to help you become more active. One of the first things to think about is start slow. Begin by looking for small ways to increase movement in your day, such as taking the stairs more often, parking your car at the far end of the lot, doing your errands on foot, even cleaning the house with more vigor. So we don't want people to think of exercise as either an all- or non-activity. Keep in mind that doing something is always better than doing nothing at all. Try to keep set set specific goals, but keep them small and keep them uh, simple so that you can achieve them. And every time you achieve a goal, acknowledge it in some way. Try calling a friend or buying a DVD or some uh, uh, way in which you can celebrate your steps towards a more active lifestyle. But while you're doing this, it's really important to listen to your body. Watch for signs of overexertion, such as uh, inability to catch your breath, feeling dizzy or lightheaded, if you're experiencing chest pain or discomfort. If you experience any of these signs, it's, good, it's important to slow down immediately and then call your physician to find out whether uh, you need to follow up uh, with the concerns that you've noticed. One of the things that we often forget Uh, is that there are people around us for whom um, becoming active may be important as well. So you can ask others for support. Find out, is there another cancer survivor who can get you going when you lack motivation? And always try to have fun. Exercise doesn't have to be something that people should avoid. I often recommend dancing because that's an activity most people enjoy, but they uh, don't seem to think of it as a form of exercise. And also think about local resources. and What does your community have uh, to offer survivors to become active? Check with your local Y or the American Cancer Society or the NCI for information. In the U.S., for example, the Lance Armstrong Foundation has partnered with local Ys in some parts of the country, and, and they are offering free exercise programs to cancer patients and their families. So before I, went, uh, before I end, I want you all to know that what we've learned about exercise after cancer is the result of patients and survivors who have volunteered to take part in these trials. I want to acknowledge all of their contributions and encourage you all to consider taking part in these trials so that our knowledge can grow to help you all. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Pinto, for really an excellent, really presentation and and really for giving us lots of tips um, on exercise, which is invaluable to all the participants. And we will have time for questions for you as well. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. Well, I'm going to. I want to thank all of our speakers. It's been outstanding, and now we do have actually time for questions. Um, We actually have lots of time for questions. I'm going to ask Mary to come on and actually bring on all of our speakers, and also if Mary would also bring on Dr. Stuart Fleischman, who's Director of Supportive Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, Beth Israel Medical Center, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital. So if you would bring on all of our speakers and Dr. Fleischman, and we're all set to take, and if you would explain to people how to queue up for questions.
0: Mary? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press the one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Our first question comes from Lynn.
6: Hi. I had a a question and a comment for um, Dr. DeMarc Wannifried. I recall you saying that um, there are studies that show that some supplements can do more harm than good. And I was curious. I know there was only a limited amount of time to really cover this, but I was a little concerned because, there's actually quite a lot of evidence based medicine that shows that certain supplements for certain people for certain types of cancers actually may be beneficial. I use a specific example of um, uh, different supplements that that can help pe help reduce inflammation in the body and inflammation... Did you have a
1: specific question, Lynn then that you wanted to ask
6: uh, I just'm wondering if if um, uh, you could comment on um, some of the the other the fact that there that it's important to have um, the supplement plan be tailor made to that individual person. I didn't okay. I didn't hear much of that, and I'm just wondering if you could comment on that.
1: Okay. Well thank you for the excellent question. Uh Dr. DeMark Whitefield would you want to um, comment yeah. on that?
5: Well I think, you know, the right now uh we are there are a lot of supplements that are showing promise. And uh, and so uh I, I, let me emphasize that word promise as far as reducing inflammation. Uh and that and then that linking that inflammation to cancer or, or um, uh, the lack of progression of cancer or whatever. Uh, and, uh, indeed, we are doing some studies on, on flaxseed right now because it has omega-3 fatty acids in it, and, indeed, we are, sh- are seeing some promising evidence that, indeed, it, it may have a, a role in inflammation um but let me qualify that even though i i uh run these clinical trials and, and um do this sort of work um we really uh need more clinical trials and not only uh do we make res- uh, recommendations on uh well in in order to make recommendations to the general public, you really do need uh, even more than one clinical trial. You need several clinical trials before you can have proof of concept here. So um, we, we have to be careful. Uh, and uh, the things... The studies that have really uh, reared their head, and we really have to pay mindful attention to, are the studies that uh, were done um, starting in the 1990s. Uh, the Alpha Tocopherol Beta Carotene trial (ATBC), where we really thought that beta carotene was going to help uh, help stop cancer, uh, and we really thought that vitamin E was going to help stop cancer, and lo and behold. Those promises really didn't or those hypotheses didn't turn out, so in fact they they actually predisposed people to to getting cancer or to really kind of accelerating the process. Um, recently, we've had the results of the select trial, which was looking at selenium and vitamin E, and again, those were touted as uh, antioxidants and so uh, were really uh, had a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of people started taking them before the results of the clinical trials were in. And then, lo and behold, we get results that show that the selenium predisposes people to diabetes risk and uh, the vitamin E to, um, uh, if anything, uh, uh, higher rates of prostate cancer. So we have to be careful. It's important not to get on the train uh, until you know exactly what direction it's going in. And uh, and that's really the the uh, role of science. And we just have to be patient for those answers.
1: That's really such an excellent point. Uh, thank you so much. And, um, uh, and thank you for asking that wonderful question. Dr. Fleischman, do you want to comment also just on the uh, concept of clinical trials and uh, how the concept of the science of that?
7: yeah I, I echo what, what's been said I, I I think this is one of those situations where what we suspect on the cellular level needs to be translated into the whole person and um, the, what, whatever we, what we read about what happens in, you know in a petri dish in a, in a cell culture um, needs to then jump onto what the effect is on, on a human and, and that's how we're sort of stuck now in in having to do those trials before anybody can make a recommendation that's more helpful than harmful. Um, Our amazing technological age now brings all that information right to the public really, really quickly. And um, it's just important for all of us to be able to read the stuff and see if, if the claims are made based upon what's happening in a tissue culture or what's happening as a result of a human clinical trial. So I I think that's why we're all a bit frustrated um, with the slowness in which things happen, but that's how um, trials are done and that's how we're able to prove things in in medicine now by actually finding if something is safe and then testing it against our best-known treatment and then um, seeing what the results are years later.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Alfano, do you want to comment from a survivorship perspective in terms of the NCI, in terms of the whole issue of the research and trials?
2: Well, just I, I echo exactly what's been said already, which is that we, we really need more research on this. And we also need to be careful in that the research that we get from observational studies, meaning studies of how people are eating naturally, those those results suggest uh, candidates that we want to test certain things and see if certain supplements work. But then in a trial setting, it, it often hasn't panned out. So it just, it, I think it really speaks to the importance of funding for these clinical trials to test these supplements. And I, this is Wendy DeMarc again. I just want to hop in. I think that uh, Dr. Pinto brought up
5: a very good point: is is that we we do need people to participate in in clinical trials, and and uh, therefore encourage any of the listening audience to to do so.
1: Dr. Pinto, we want to include you here too, as well. In terms of, we can see this question that that um, Ashley Lynn asked. Really, I didn't involve all of all of our speakers. You know, all of our. Uh, faculty here, because indeed it's such an important question. and I know it's something that does um, is an issue for everyone. And Dr. pinto do you want to comment on just that issue of participation in trials? So you had really. Well, you, uh, uh,
3: I, I think among our listeners, uh, there, there may be many of you all who may have known some particular ex- uh, individual who uh, experienced positive effects. But uh, as uh, the other speakers have pointed out, we do need to test these on larger uh, in larger samples um, so that we can make uh definite recommendations and uh we're not there yet uh, that, it's frustrating but <laughs> that's the way science progresses so
1: thank you and so thank you that's a wonderful question our, our next question, question please
0: our next question comes from Cheryl i wonder if uh,
6: many of the speakers can comment on issues of alcohol I, there have been a number of studies recently speaking to um you know pros and cons of alcohol use
1: Dr. DeMarc Winifred, do you want to start with that one?
5: Sure. Um, and uh, I, uh, we, uh, as uh, a member of the ACS panel that makes diet and exercise recommendations, we struggle with alcohol uh, because, first of all, we know that alcohol is uh, associated with primary risk of some cancers. So for example, uh, head and neck cancer, breast cancer, there's a linear association between alcohol intake and risk of breast cancer. Um, but then we also see data that, uh, and again, these are observational data. So Dr. Alfano has kind of pointed out the uh, the caveat of looking at those data and then being able to interpret them, uh, and seeing that uh, once a once a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, alcohol intake seems to be no longer linked with uh, recurrence, uh, actually is associated with lower ovarian cancer risk. Uh, and, uh, so try to make sense out of that, that, um, the data that are, that are provided there. And then also we have, we struggle with the notion that, or not the notion, the, the evidence that alcohol actually reduces cardiovascular Disease risk if consumed moderately. And we know that cancer survivors are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So uh, having some of that cardioprotective effect that alcohol can render. Is, is important if, if um, uh, in, in being able to, to battle, you know, that, that leading cause of, uh, comorbidity. So um, as far as alcohol goes, what the recommendations now state is that, uh, women consume no more than one, uh, drink a day, men no more than two, and, and then, uh, just to, uh, be very, um uh, I, I guess um, to, to weigh what sort of risks are in the family. So if if a survivor has a, a very large family history of cardiovascular disease, well then the implications for having moderate amounts of alcohol might might be warranted. Whereas if a survivor is in a family that doesn't have any cardiovascular disease, um, they may actually want to be a, a, uh, imbibe a, a lot less. Uh, than than um, the patient that, that does have a, a family history of cardiovascular disease. Excellent.
1: Thank you. And Dr. Fleischman, could you comment just on the interaction with other medicines someone might be talking might be taking, or that sort of just those kinds of drug interactions?
7: Um, the I guess just the concept, rather than the details, yes. because we really can't cover the details, yeah. is that alcohol is digested um, by both the liver and the kidneys, and it changes how the body digests virtually every other medicine that we take, either in a small or large way. Um, It was thought years ago that that alcohol actually causes a lot of the medicines to um, not be digested, so we can't get our full goodness out of them, as well as um, actually causes the liver and the kidneys to overwork. But that's sort of a concept I think we've gotten a lot more sophisticated about these things now, and we know that for certain interactions, the drugs are actually digested too quickly, and we don't get the benefit. So um, that's sort of the concept uh, behind the the chemistry. In daily life, if anybody uh, is taking any sort of medicine that is sedating, and in cancer treatment, a lot of medicines can be sedating, pain medicines, nausea medicines. Adding alcohol on top of that, apart from all the risks that were just mentioned, can uh, make somebody very sedated to the point where they can't take the medicines that are, are being taken for pain or nausea. So um, on, on the, in the larger framework, alcohol can really work against somebody. But um, you just have to be really careful with it because uh, we we do know that um, many people still will have some alcohol because that's part of their daily routine. And um, as much advice as we'd like to give about what the science is behind this, we we do know that the culture encourages people to have a drink, and we hope that is very controlled and very, very minimal because of all the risks that were just mentioned.
0: Thank you. Okay, our next question. Our next question comes from Allison. Uh,
4: yes, I was wondering uh, if I could ask a question of the nutrition panelist mm-hmm. um, regarding um, your comments on weight gain. Um, I'm um, experiencing extreme weight loss, and as much as I try and address that with uh, you know healthy foods, um, nutritional supplements, um, I find it's it's very difficult for me to gain weight back. Um, and I was wondering if you could comment on um, the flip side of that, how to best, what, what the best approach is to bump up your weight to a more okay. healthy weight to, you know, help fight the cancer. Okay.
1: Thank okay. you, That's an excellent question.
5: Um, the um, um, this is an uh, increasingly more of a rare problem, but it is a problem nevertheless there is a there are a number of cancer survivors who have trouble actually maintaining their weight and so for for um, for people um, like you. Trying to increase, uh, caloric intake by actually, uh, adding, uh, more, uh, uh more, uh, high density foods such as, uh, here you would want to add more fat, uh, to your, uh, to your meals, uh, and actually make things more nutrient dense. Uh, the only caution I would use is instead of using fat like animal fat and that sort of thing, to, to concentrate more on olive oils and and uh, canola oils and those those sorts of healthy oils that add a lot of calories. Uh, but that really um, are are more healthy and and uh, and better for you. Um, the other thing is is to um, uh, to here is an, an instance where alcohol actually may help to improve the appetite. Uh, to drink, t- take a um, an alcoholic beverage, and, and again, this is only if your medications um, are um, uh, are conducive to taking alcohol. Uh, 20 minutes before a meal, and that stimulates appetite appetite, uh, to avoid foods that fill you up quickly, so instead of soups, to actually have more solid foods, to try to eat throughout the day. Uh, oftentimes, people that don't have an appetite tend not to, to think of food. And here is an, uh, uh, an instance where you'd want to have um, cues, um, food Food eating cues around the house. So to have um, dishes of nuts uh, that are fairly high in calories, uh, dried fruits that provide nutrients but yet are high in calories, um, and, and to have those around the house so that when you think of, when you see them, you just automatically um, take a handful, uh, keep them in your pockets, uh, and just keep food more available. Uh, the other thing too is, is that you may want to take some sort of supplement like a Sustacal or some of the, the, um, uh, uh the uh, formulas that exist on the market. Um, the other thing is to, to make sure that your doctor knows about your weight loss and the trouble that, that uh, you're having in, in keeping your weight uh, stable. Uh, and then they can also recommend, um, uh, uh different different types of, um, uh, of supplements uh and, and I, when I say supplements i don 't mean uh like a, a an isolated vitamin or, or or such i mean almost like a supplement beverage.
2: Let me jump in here too. This is Catherine Alfano from the NCI. The research, there's some really intriguing research that shows that people who tend to um, lose weight and have difficulty keeping weight on are actually losing lean mass, meaning muscle mass. And so that really, for us, points to, from a rehabilitation standpoint, the need to get out there and do your exercise so that you're keeping that muscle mass up to the extent that you that you can.
1: And that's an excellent point. And Dr. Pinto, then, could you comment on that lean muscle mass, what that is, to explain that to everybody, and how they can actually help to build that?
3: Um, the, the issue with uh, when, we turn, when we lose weight, uh, we usually lose muscle first, unfortunately. And as I mentioned, uh, if we don't stay active, uh, we, we lose um, muscle mass very quickly, um, in order to build it back up, one has to engage in exercise, and actually strength training is particularly helpful uh, for building muscle mass. Um, but I think, too, before one ventures out into um, investing into a home gym, it's, and uh, I echo what um, one of the previous speakers said, it's important to consult with your physician and perhaps have a multi-component program to help you to um, to uh, uh, gain weight in a, in a safe way.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Wonderful questions and a wonderful faculty here. Our next question, please.
0: Our next question comes from J.L.
7: Yes, hello. My question, I would like to direct to Dr. DeMarc Winifred. Um, I know you can't speak definitively on the subject, but would you be able to um, speak to the
3: cancer-suppressing potential of things like green tea, uh, eating organically, um, having a lot of omega-3s like flax in your diet, and perhaps about the uh, Budwig protocol?
1: Okay. But I'm also going to ask uh, Dr. Winford to actually comment specifically, also about um, the issue of organic foods as well, and um, also um, just about that because I know many people are obviously stretched economically and the cost that's involved in that. So if you could just comment okay. on that as well.
5: Yeah. Well, let me let me first address the, the green tea um, and uh, the flaxseed, and then the Budwig uh, protocol, and all of those rely on functional foods. Uh, Flaxseed has the highest amount of lignin of any food that we know. It also has the highest amount of uh, plant-based omega-3 fatty acids. Green tea has catechins as well as other um, sort of uh, sorts of uh, substances in there that have really shown some promise in, in the Petri dish and, and in laboratory animals. Uh, so these are, these are examples of functional foods that, out there that are currently being tested. Um, and uh, research is, is being done on them. It's just a little, It's early again. It's early to know anything definitive on these on these sorts of foods. So I, I think it's important um, just to bear in mind that if you do take them, you just you're, you're We don't know all the data that exists currently uh as far as organic foods uh and are they better than um, than foods that uh, are grown uh with um, traditional farming means or or green agriculture cuz um, actually traditional farming meat uh is uh, uh is actually pesticide free um, you know I, I wouldn't say to anybody oh go out there and eat you know, lots of pesticides it's you know one of those things that uh, uh uh, would be counterintuitive and, and probably not um, not recommended. However, that being said, uh, we have to bear in mind that plants make their own pesticides and that uh, these chemicals are in plants naturally. Uh, and, uh, right now the evidence does not show that, uh, that, uh, eating organic foods versus those that are, uh, grown, uh, with, uh, uh fertilizers and, and, pesticides, that there's a difference, uh, in cancer rates or cancer progression in the two groups. Um, and so therefore, um as far as fruits and vegetables go, uh, people should try to eat them because they have a lot of, they have a lot of nutrients in them. And sometimes we, we go into, we do our interventions among people, uh, cancer survivors, and they say, oh, I've stopped using fruits and vegetables because I'm afraid of the pesticides. Well, there's so many other helpful nutrients in there that really could, uh, are beneficial, and um, those should not be cut out of the diet. So it's important to eat fruits and vegetables. Um, um, one of the ways that you can reduce your um, potential intake of pesticides is to, to um uh in there are some pesticides, let me let me preface this uh saying that we can't really get rid of. They they kind of go right into the plants. For example, apples. Um, the um, pesticides that are usually used uh, on that crop uh, are integrated into the fruit itself. But some pesticides are are applied topically, and so therefore um, you can, uh, by giving them a good scrubbing, particularly um, because pesticides tend to be uh, oil or uh, lipid-based, some of that, uh, you can cut through some of that pesticide layer by using weak acids in uh, either washing your uh, uh, just kind of wiping your fruit with vinegar or lemon juice or something down that line uh, can get can uh, reduce levels um, in that. Or to, to use one of the um, washes. Um, so uh, it, it's important to eat fruits and vegetables. And if you're on a limited budget, um, you know it's uh, the the organic ones really don't show any significant protective effect that we know of so far. Than um, the ones that are inorganic.
1: Thank you very much. Our next question. Our next question comes from Polly.
6: I'd like to go back to supplements in in specific regard to vitamin D. Uh, More and more doctors are recommending it, and uh, I want to know what your take is.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Dr. Fleischmann, could you comment on that?
7: There are, there are, there's talk out there that vitamin D is supposed to be helpful, um, in, in, certainly in heart health. Uh, we've heard uh, reports of it helpful in breast cancer, but uh, again, I, I don't believe the definitive studies are done for us to know. And as was mentioned before, uh, we, we've been through this with vitamin E, where some of the folks taking vitamin E a number of years later actually had an increased risk of recurrence of lung cancer. So again, we're balancing one organ system against another, um, and that's sometimes hard to do because we need to pay attention to everything for it to work well. But um, I, I think the definitive studies really need to be done so we know safety as well as benefit.
1: And you may want to speak to your doctor. Also, some people on the call may be concerned about bone health, and so that's, that's a whole other issue that you may want to discuss with your doctor as well, that, that issue. Um, Dr. Pinto, can you comment, though, on just the... Um, in terms of exercise value, in terms of just um, of being active and how that can be of use to people. Uh,
3: in terms of, of bone health, uh, in, in response to one of the previous uh, questions, resistance to uh, exercise, that is when you use weights, does help in building um, not only muscle mass but also strengthens the bones. Um, and... Uh, But there have been very few studies that have actually looked at resistance training for cancer patients. There are only about five studies that I know of, and very few of those five studies only looked at uh, resistance training. The others combined uh, resistance training with other kinds of of interventions. The but we do know that in non-cancer populations, when you, uh, when you walk or even when you lift weights, it does help to strengthen your, your, um, the, the minerals in your bones such that your risk, particularly for women as they grow older, your risk for osteoporosis decreases. And unfortunately for some cancer patients, because you're on some medications that uh, tend to reduce estrogen, it tends to aggravate osteoporosis. So it is very important for women to stay, particularly for women, to stay active and to maintain a level of activity for their bone health, uh, and particularly true for those who have had cancer.
1: Excellent. Well, Dr. Othana, do you want to add anything to this?
2: I think those were excellent, excellent comments. Um, I think Dr. Pinto nailed it, and thanks to all of our speakers today for the wonderful, um, and, and all of our participants, wonderful questions and answers.
1: Well, I, too, would like to echo what Dr. Alfonso said. I just want to thank all of our speakers. You've just really been outstanding, just really an outstanding group of speakers today, and also just wonderful questions that you've all asked. And I know that you asked the questions, of course, to get help for your specific question for yourself. By asking your question, you can see that um, some of your questions really wanted to have the whole multidisciplinary team answer your question, but your question ends up allowing our speakers to further elaborate on a point and really to further and develop a point um, that might not have occurred if you had not asked your question. And, of course, all of you who have been listening, and I know that some of you have questions that you have not had a chance to ask, and I would direct you all to go ahead and call Cancer Care at the end of the call, our 1-800-813-HOPE number. Our staff are here to take your questions. Um, as well as all of our different uh, partnering organizations, as well as the Cancer Information Service. Um, and their uh, their number is 1-800-NUMBER-FOR-CANCER. So if you have questions that you didn't get to ask, you certainly can feel free to call us. I want to remind all of you that this is a one-hour education program, and then planning a program like this, we recognize that you all have many needs, that go far beyond the scope of the one-hour program. And so with that in mind, we have all of these collaborating organizations, and we really encourage you to take advantage of all of their free services, their toll-free numbers, their websites, um, as resources for you, so that although this program lasts one hour, our services from all of our organizations, those really will continue actually, um, you know, throughout this entire, um, you know, as long as you need us, all, we're here for you, um, and you can simply call us. So I don't want anyone to feel that you're alone with your question or your concern. Um, you know, at the end of today's program, because indeed, um, I want you to feel that you're now part of a community of support, and that um, that we're here, we're all here for you. I, I also remind you that this is part two of a three-part series, and so part three will take place on June 23rd. And this is focused on survivors, too, family, friends, and loved ones managing the fatigue of caregiving. So there's more um, to this series to stay tuned. Also, I do want to remind all of you to be sure to complete your evaluation forms because we really rely on your evaluation forms in planning our future programs. And that's really um, very important to us, to have your um, your feedback and your comments so that we can plan the most helpful programs for all of you. Now, I want to thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This includes program. You may disconnect, and have a wonderful day.